Well, everybody, welcome to Bedside Matters. It's another episode of this wonderful medical podcast. Hopefully, we're going to give you answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and healthier. Uh, I'm Peter Tilden, one of your hosts. Anna Vecino is another one of our hosts. And Dr. David Kibber, of course, is the man with the answers because I'm only, I'm about 700 credits shy of a medical degree. How are you, David? I'm good, Peter. I th- I just made it, by the way. I'm three credits over. Yeah, well, and David also, what people should know listening to this, I don't know how you see patients, as many patients as you do a week, and also stay on top of all the literature because I know there's such, first of all, a lot of advances, which is why we do this show. It's, it's unbelievable how quickly medical technology is moving. So with that, with that said, Here's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, apparently, there's a new treatment for brain fog due to long COVID, which I'm very excited to hear about because I I feel like me personally, my lungs have been squishy. My brain has been foggy. I want to hear all about this long COVID thing. It's very real and it's very, um, it'll stop you in your tracks. We're also going to talk about uh, another one of my favorite topics, IBS and the bowels. There's good news. We're going to talk about the good news. Dr. Kipper will give us the good bowel news that we all have been waiting for. And this just happened, a new meningitis vaccine for kids. Is, is meningitis still happening in a big way? And why just for kids? And then we have a caller in our Hey, What About Me segment that wants to know about abdominal pain and a new test for abdominal pain. How does it work? So we'll, we'll find out all about that. So let's get started. Long COVID, new treatment, brain fog, fatigue, yada, yada, yada. What, what are we doing? What they found out was that people that have long COVID have lower serotonin levels in their system. And then they had to figure out why that was. But serotonin for almost every viral illness, when they get initially sick, the serotonin levels drop. And every other virus, they come back. They rebound back to normal. But in long COVID, they didn't rebound. So what they found was that lack of serotonin is probably ultimately responsible in part, but in a major part, for all these neurologic and cognitive memory foggy issues. Which makes sense. But can I ask a question first about long COVID? How do you know? Like some days I feel punchy or whatever. That's a good question. And you go, oh, I think I have the brain fog. And everybody goes, no, you don't. And oh, I think I have long COVID. No, you don't. Like I wouldn't go to the doctor, but I feel like I might have it. You know so what I mean? what's the definitive, what's, what is that, David, what does that feel like? Or is it hard to identify? Is it different for everybody else? People listening thinking, oh, I have brain fog, or maybe it's because I'm older, there's a little bit of dementia, or I'm just slowing down. Or how do you know the difference? How do you know when it's that? The metrics for this are that if you're still symptomatic two to three months after your initial injury, you are considered to have long COVID. But what does happen is that people get better and then a couple months go by and they get another round of this. And generally, the things that we see with long COVID are fatigue. That's the main one. But they'll also get headaches or nasal congestion. They'll get some or cough. They'll get some of these symptoms, but mostly they're going to get really fatigued. How would you describe the brain fog? Yes. And let me back it up, too, by saying, too, brain, describe the brain fog and also maybe give us a little serotonin 101 like how that would all ties in? So the brain fog is that these neural pathways that allow us to not just think, but to remember, they're a little fuzzy with this virus. There's a lot of inflammation that goes on in the brain with this virus. And so it may present as being dense, not remembering. These are all things that 
neurologically define this? And again, the major thing is fatigue. But going back to your second question about serotonin, what is it? There are two major neurotransmitters in the brain. One is serotonin, one is dopamine. Serotonin's the calming neurotransmitter, which is there to mute the excitatory or stimulating neurotransmitter, which is dopamine. So those two neurotransmitters try to balance each other out. If one gets too high, the other one kind of comes in and vice versa. And serotonin is responsible for a lot of things. It's responsible for cognitive issues. It's responsible for moving the bowels. It's responsible for mood, uh, anxiety. So serotonin gets in everywhere. So how are they using serotonin to treat the, now that they know that it's a lack of serotonin, what are they doing to treat the brain fog? Well, there's several things you can do. One is that you can replace the serotonin with some pharmaceuticals. You Prozac is a serotonergic medicine. Zoloft, uh, Lexapro, there's 10 of these. And they literally deliver serotonin to the system. And we haven't really tested this out enough, but this is what people are now starting to do is to give serotonin. So if you go to your doctor with these symptoms of long COVID, you might ask the doctor about a trial of one of these medicines. It doesn't mean that you're going to be on it the rest of your life, but it's something that might certainly might help. There's supplements that provide serotonin, vitamin D, omega-3s, St. John's wort, sunlight, exercise can boost your serotonin levels. And pretty soon, we're all going to be eating some tryptophan, right, at Thanksgiving. Yeah. Tryptophan, which is the precursor to serotonin, gives you the serotonin. So turkey, if you want more serotonin, you might not stay awake, but it'll give you more serotonin. Uh, dairy, tofu, spinach, bananas. So there's several things in our diet that will help boost this. That would our- make a disgusting smoothie. Hey, David, if you're getting Prozac for serotonin, how long does it take before people, I remember with these antidepressants, it takes a while if it's for mood. If it's for serotonin replacement, is it the same thing where it takes a while? Oh, good question. Very smart question, Peter. And it's, this is one of the issues. So if you ask your doctor for a serotonin medicine, it could be six to eight weeks before you get a response. So yes, there is that issue. Zoloft, which is one of the serotonergics, Zoloft actually gets into your system a little quicker. So as a clinician, I would probably start with Zoloft to see if someone could get a more immediate response. Very smart. I think another interesting question to this and how they you know, came to this understanding is why is it that the serotonin levels don't rebound? You know, what is it that yeah. keeps them from, from coming back? And there's three things that do this. One is that the virus itself lingers in the gut. And the gut, as we've talked about with the microbiome, produces 90% of the serotonin we have. So if that virus is hanging around the factory, the factory's not going to make much serotonin. There's a, there's a problem with platelets. Platelets are those things that cause our cuts to scab over and to close mm-hmm. down. And serotonin lives in, is concentrated in the platelets. And one of the problems that we have with COVID is that people get blood clots. So when people get a blood clot and all those platelets are sort of locked up in a clot, the serotonin that's there isn't going to get out into the circulation. 
Wow. So that's another another issue. And then there's an inflammation problem where obviously the COVID creates this tremendous cytokine storm and there's inflammation in the lining of the gut and, and anterior. And the gut at that point, um, it just can't absorb the tryptophan that it needs to make the serotonin. So there are a few different mechanisms for why the serotonin is not coming to the plate. Well, it's interesting, that you, especially that you mentioned the gut, because not just COVID affecting the gut, but anybody with any sort of gut dysbiosis, right? With that, that could be, they could have a serotonin issue. Right? Yes, yes. And that's often the case, by the way. And since ser- this is interesting, Anna, because since serotonin is an anxiolytic, it, it, if you're normal in your serotonin levels, you tend to be less anxious. If you're deficient, you tend to be very anxious. Yeah. So when you look at this, you're, <laughs> the, the serotonin helps in that regard, and it's the anxiety that often uh, promotes some of these other symptoms. So there's, there's a direct connection between your serotonin levels and what's going on in the brain. Can we change St. John's word to another name? Can they, I mean, I know. Just, it's such a creepy name, really. I know. Speaking of the gut, there's some good news. Tell us about this, Doc. It's really a common thing that we see in a general practitioner's office. One of the most common things we see. It's also the most common GI issue that we see. And there is no cure for this. So everything we're doing is just sort of patchwork and we're chasing the symptoms. But here's a new idea, uh, which has been borne out with some research, that will also improve your symptoms. And this is amitriptyline, which is also known as Elavil. It's a tricyclic antidepressant. It was been used for a long time for depression. In fact, we had these tricyclics before we had these serotonergics. So before Prozac came these drugs, there are acetylcholine receptors in the brain. And acetylcholine is, is associated with depression. So the amitriptyline these are anticholinergics. They block the acetylcholine receptors. So the depression is, that's probably how it works in depression. So it's very interesting because, again, we don't have great medications for this. We also know, as I said, that people that have anxiety disorders, their neurologic input into the bowel is off. Here's what happens. The bowel's a tube around, and the stuff has to get from the top of the bowel, the stomach, mouth, stomach, has to go down to the bottom, right? And to get there, there's sort of a synchrony of how one part opens up, and then the part below that is closed. It does its work. Then that part that was open, dilated, now constricts. The part under it opens up, dilates, takes the product. It takes out in that area of the bowel what it wants, and that goes on and on throughout the whole intestinal like tract. Like a pig going through a piranha. And, <laughs> Is that peristalsis? That's peristalsis. There you go. So how does that work? It works because there are nerves that wrap around the outside of the bowel, and they're really running. It's like a, a signal set up that you in a, in a traffic. Like a relay race. 
And what happens in an irritable bowel is that because of the increase in cortisol and, and anxiety that causes these stress hormones to come out, that synchrony is disturbed. So one part that's opening when it should be closing, and another part further down might be closing when it should be opening. So the bowel's not moving normally. And the peristalsis, another good word for today, is abnormal. And that's why there, we know there's a huge association of stress with irritable bowel. And that's all cortisol, David? Is it because of the cortisol? Yes. The cortisol, again, it, it liberates or provokes the stimulating transmitters. And that causes this uh, disruption in the normal peristalsis activity. So Anna talks about IBS a lot. My son has an issue. I, I enjoy and, talking about it. Well, because be a lot of people have it, you do enjoy talking about it. I do. But the, the question I have is, if everybody has a different IBS issue, because it's stress, it's this, like my son is on a bunch of medication for another issue that he has. Could this med not work because it's, it would impact other mm. meds that people are on? Or some people have IBS because That's of the meds question. they're on. So how, what's the impact there? Because nobody's in a vacuum where it's just, this is what I have. It's the only thing I have. So I'm going to take this and it's going to impact it. If they're not stressed and they have it, what are the alternatives here? And how much better is this drug than another drug? Another great question, Peter. And I think that the answer is this drug, I don't think is going to cause IBS symptoms. Uh, this drug does have some side effects, but that isn't one of them. But when you query people long enough that come in with their symptoms, they will identify something that was recently stressful. So it, it almost always gets back to stress. Sometimes it's diet. Dairy can provoke this. Uh, caffeine can provoke this. There are two kinds of IBS. There's IBS, 80% of them are the diarrhea type, IBS-D, and then 20% are the constipation. So you can have constipation or diarrhea. The most common one is the diarrhea. But I don't think that this drug is going to create any imbalance with any other medicines, unless those enzymes are you know, shared. Um, what they did, by the way, was they gave people amitriptyline, Elevil, for six months with these people that were suffering from this, and they got better, and wow. their, sim their symptoms got better. And they, you know, you don't have IBS all day, every day. You have IBS creeps up when there's a, a problem, and then it goes away after a while. So these people stayed out of trouble for a long period of time. Do you have to stay on the meds for forever, or can you... I think that you can take what it looks like is that you can take these medications as needed. So if you start to get your, or if you are plagued with chronic IBS, that might be another reason to stay on these. And as we said at the beginning of this, one of the things that it's going to do is it's going to help with depression and anxiety, which is one of the causes. going to help the whole, the whole system. Great. So if people have IBS, boy, and you, let's say constipation, okay? If you stay on these drugs long enough or you, or you try a lot of different stuff for this constipation, can you irritate, inadvertently irritate the system so that you now have lifelong constipation because you've fed so much stuff in there, you've inflamed it and done damage to it, and now you're const you constantly have the problem? It's very unlikely that you will shift from the constipation variety to the diarrhea. 
unless, of course, when you're in the constipation arena and you start taking all these laxatives and antispasmodics and other things, eventually the dam's going to break and you might have some diarrhea. But could you end up with constipation forever by taking a variety of drugs to cure the constipation over years? I've never seen it. And I don't, okay. I don't see how that would work. It's a good question, but I, I've never seen it. I just, you know, I thought of it's weird, like the nasal spray, you use it so much, the inflammation happens, and now you have to have your nose cauterized or whatever. If you're taking so much constipation stuff all the time, I didn't know how that impacts your system. There's another issue with IBS, and I think we overlook, because it's a very nonspecific form of pain, and again, the associations are not always there, and you really have to ask people what's going on. And women being twice as likely to get IBS... We see a lot of surgical procedures in women that didn't need it because they've got abdominal pain. So women get uh, operated on with hysterectomies, ovarian surgeries, because again, it's sort of nondescript. And IBS is, is a diagnosis by elimination, no pun intended. Shouldn't you get an ultrasound before you're going to get a, is it, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correct the oophorectomy or hysterectomy? Like, shouldn't you be, shouldn't they have a little bit clearer? Pull out the other stuff before they start taking stuff out? Yes, but remember, the female system is very complicated and has a rhythm to it. And so you might see normal female anatomy, but you might be having a bad and recurrent uh, problem with IBS. And not everybody admits to being stressed I would bet if you're out there listening and you are suffering from IBS, and a lot of people do, trace all this back to seeing if you had some stressor that that provoked this. Yeah. Or or foods. It makes sense. And what do people have to be stressed about? Well, just pry that dairy from my cold, dead hands. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right, Charlton Heston. So this just in, this just happened. A new meningitis vaccine has been created for kids. Two questions. I didn't know that meningitis is still around. How does it present? And why just kids? We see it more commonly in children and young adults. Uh, we don't see it so much in older people. And to your question initially, Peter, <laughs> yes, uh, adults can get these vaccines. The problem that we've had is that the vaccines are not that specific. So kids starting at age 11, they have to get multiple vaccines to, to cover the five different strains of the meningococcal bacteria. Uh, these vaccines have not been inclusive of all of them. So at age 11, they get three shots to cover these, these variants. And at age 12, they get it again. And at age 16, if they're high risk, for getting these illnesses. And those are, those are kids that have underlying health issues. So if, at the end of the day, these kids have been stuck and jabbed and, and schools, most schools, most states require to get into school, you have to show records of vaccinations. So here's my question. You're talking about five strains of the bacteria. I always heard when we were kids, there was viral meningitis and bacterial meningitis. The bacterial one's the worst one. So were you not worried about the viral one? Or am I just remembering that falsely from childhood? No, you're absolutely right, Anna. There are two types. These are the bacterial varieties. Okay, so the, the vaccine is for the bacterial varieties. 
So what? And we, is that the more serious one? Is that why we, they did the vaccine for that one, or is the viral one not as serious? Virals are tend to be more self-limiting. They sort of run their course, but bacterial infections can go into the general system, and you can get sepsis. Oh yeah, uh, not good. A, a percentage of people die with this. Fifteen percent of people die with this. That's horrible. So here's what they came up with. Pfizer did this. It's called Penbria, and it took all these five variants and put them into one shot. So the kid now no. goes with the pediatrician, gets his shot, and then three months later, there's one booster, but that's it. Great. And it covers all of these strains. So this, for, <laughs> for kids and some adults that don't like the needles, uh, this is a, a big selling point. What age should they get them? You start around age 11. Okay. And then you go the next year. And then, if again, if you're high risk, you go back a few years later. Adults can get these, but we're less likely to get that infection. What's interesting in this, I think, is that probably 10% of people are running around as carriers of the bacterial component and that they live in the nasal passages they they yeah. live in the sinuses they don't express themselves in all these people but it's out there and i was going to say how does one get meningitis today it's a droplet infection someone sneezes on you someone coughs on you like they wow. get all all the other everything else infections. but ground zero how would i get meningitis not from somebody no you would have caught it from somebody got it from somebody got yes it. We have a caller, of course, in the segment that we have labeled and called, hey, what about me giving you a chance to ask Dr. Kipper your question? An intriguing question today, David, that has to do with stomach pain. However, it also has to do with the test for stomach pain. Hi, doctor. Um, I have a question for you. My sister has had some abdominal pain for quite a while, and her doctor has suggested that... She could swallow a tiny camera. Um, what is this about? How does this work? It sounds really futuristic. Can you help me? Yes, David. That sounds. You swallow the camera, then light, then a bit of lighting, and then a crew. What's, what's going on? Well, it's not a. It's not a Nikon or a Minolta. <laughs> this is a okay. camera that's extremely tiny, and and you can swallow it without getting hurt. We don't go to the camera first. We we have several things that we do first, and then when we're really confused and we can't figure it out from the test, then we go to the camera. So the camera is sort of a last resort in diagnosing. What do uh, they find the, with the camera? They can find bleeding sites of bleeding. People come in with GI bleeds and they don't know what? exactly where they are, but we can actually treat them if we know where they are. They find lesions in the colon, small intestine. You're having abdominal pain and they can't figure out where the pain's coming from. So you take the camera and it takes a little ride from goalpost to goalpost. And there might be some area that looks abnormal and identifies that part. Uh, we sometimes find adhesions, which is scar tissue with these mm. cameras, which do cause pain. And it's also probably one of the best ways to diagnose inflammatory bowel disease. So that's Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And it, it sounds horrible, but everyone that's done this have no complaints. They, they swallow it. It's no big deal. 
Um, Isn't it like small? It's like a capsule, right? Tiny. It's like a capsule, yes. Yeah. And somebody watching it in real time as it's going down so they can stop and then do the treatment, like they do a colonoscopy? Or is it just you get the video later on, they say, we got to go back in. They have to take it to develop it. It's recorded in real time, but there's not somebody looking at a screen, but it's, you know, obviously it's hooked up to something. The process is very simple. You you go in, you take Miralax for a couple of days. Miralax puts water into the intestinal tract so that camera can slide through. Uh, and then you take a couple gas X uh, about 30 minutes before you swallow it. And then you don't eat or drink for a couple hours. Uh, you can have clear liquids after that. But after about six hours, you can have light snacks. It's already gone past the stomach and it's probably ahead of anything you're going to put in your stomach. Um, and they pass within 24 to 72 hours. They come out. It's going to be a dumb one. question, but it, it's wireless, right? There's no string attached that you got to pull back out at the. Okay, I'm just. just There's a str- you have one long dental floss <laughs> out of both ends. <laughs> I'm picturing like a, a cable, and I'm thinking, uh oh. No. All right, the test is done. It's. I'm not going to tell you to win on three. <laughs> you made it worse. It is, may I say, in medical terms for treatments. It's a hard one to swallow. And there you go. go. There is a disadvantage to this. Can you figure out what that might be? It's not common. Irritation. Worse than irritation. Get stuck? Get stuck. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. Your your stomach loves being the center of attention. And then all of a sudden it's like, no, I'm keeping this camera forever. It's now stuck. What are we doing? Mm -hmm. What are we doing? Depending where it is, you have to go get it. So it could, could be a little laparoscopic procedure Mm-mm. it's one in a thousand by the way it's not it's not yeah, but, that common but and except fact, i'm the king of, of people saying i've never seen this happen before so i uh, you know i get <laughs> and it just spit out a car everywhere i've ever gone in any any procedure anything with the car never seen this happen before so so do when, you just have to poop into like a saran wrap until you get it out no they don't want the camera back it's yours oh it's done you can just flush it that's amazing. I thought there had yeah. to be a guy retrieving it and then like put, putting it in the no. drive. 24 hour photo, <laughs> like, knocking your door, going, I'm going to pick up the camera. Putting it in the USB drive, <laughs> wipe it off. That's the first job in the world is the camera retrievement guy. <laughs> That's what okay. I was thinking. Amazing. But the technology is amazing wow. that something that small. This is what's actually good news for our caller. We, we didn't use this for everyone because initially when they first came out, they only got so far into the intestinal tract through the small bowel. Uh, they didn't really get into the colon very well. But now the camera's been redesigned so that it goes all the way from top to bottom. So it actually is a better diagnostic tool than it was initially. And the technology, like you said, Peter, has changed. Is there anybody who can't have this done because they have some kind of thing? Lockage does or it, that, no. whatever. Yeah, that that where it would be. They're too small or their pipes are too small. I mean, how do you by, test? By the time you get to swallowing that camera, they've done other tests to see that you you don't have a swallowing issue. You don't have a bowel obstruction. You know, these are all the imaging right. studies that God, they've okay. done for that. So it's the, you're screened for this. And by the way, I got a quiz for all three of you, including <laughs> producer Laurie. There's a movie that involves one of our recent guests that's about this technology and it was done in the 80s. I know the answer to this. 
Anybody know what it was? It was done in the 80s. Honey, I ate the camera. Here's, here's what it is. It's inner space where they had this technology and an evil, an evil guy stole the technology and before he could get caught, plunges the syringe into an innocent bystander who now has these people inside his system, and that would be Martin Short. And it was Interspace 1987 movie. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) When I knew we were talking about this, I said, wait, this sounds really familiar. And I think Martin Short had this inside him. So, (laughs) And you're reminding me. (laughs) Yeah. Listeners, we just had a chat with Martin Short and Steve Martin in the episode prior to this one. If you have not listened to it, go back and listen to it. And who better to entertain your colon than Martin, Martin Short. Short? This would be a good time to wrap things up. Would this, we're, I think we'll wrap things up on this <laughs> note. Um, we've had a, this is this has been a, a, a poop heavy episode, and that's okay. We love it. Today we talked about uh, new treatments for long COVID. Serotonin deficiency happens with long COVID, so speak to your doctor about maybe taking some serotonin medicine for a short period of time. Look at the foods you can eat. There are foods, there are supplements that you can take, and you can get outside in the sunshine and exercise to build your serotonin back up. So if you're suffering with long COVID, consider those treatment options. And then we talked about um, some good news for the bowel. So amitriptyline has been found to work in patients that have irritable bowel. And irritable bowel is probably in 20% of the population. It's very common. That's high. Intermittent episodes of diarrhea, constipation. But amitriptyline works in a wonderful way in the brain uh, to slow things down and to restore normalcy. Ask your doctor. This just happened. New meningitis vaccinations for kids. So the meningitis vaccine that we've had forever was brutal. Five different strains of this bacteria. And you had to get multiple shots. Uh, and boosters to protect you. And when you're 11 and 12 years old, that's not fun. So Pfizer came up with this new vaccine that incorporates all of these different variants of the meningitis. So it's a lot easier now. It's one shot, and then a couple months later, you get a booster, but that's it. And if you have a problem and inside of you, they can send a camera on a trip like the incredible journey to check it out, right, David? Yep. It's small, it's uh, painless, and it's sort of odd when you think about it. But <laughs> it 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 helps us solve those problems that we couldn't get to with our conventional diagnostics. It's really amazing technology when you think about it that we can actually do that to take a look. And by the way, if you guys out there are listening and you have a question for Dr. Kipper, why don't you head on over to bedsidematters.org, pop in your question there. And it might just get answered on the air. And we have socials, guys. We have social media accounts. We have at Bedside Matters Pod Twitter, otherwise known as X. And we have at Bedside Matters Podcast on Instagram. We're putting clips. Follow us. Ask questions. Slide into our DMs. And find out all about your brain chemistry with Override, Dr. Kipper's book, which will explain why you are the way you are. It's fascinating. And every every conversation we're hearing about medicine today has to do with inflammation or brain chemistry. So check it out. You should know. And Anna Vicino, go to AnnaVicino.com for her sauces, her rubs, her recipes, gluten-free. Go, you do it, Anna. Gluten-free. Gluten-free, grain-free, low-carb recipes for a joyful life. 
They're wonderful. I eat the yeah. sauce all all of the time. I'd like to thank Dr. Kipper and Anna Vicino and producer Laurie Kermy. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to Bedside Matters. If you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, we're here to help. We offer new episodes every Monday. So follow us, like us, and have a great and healthy week. The information on Bedside Matters should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on Bedside Matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.